This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Xiaoik. In conjunction with World Mental Health Day, which is commemorated on the 10th of October, this month's episode of Humans of Healthcare features a psychiatrist. I'm speaking today to Dr. Ravi Varma Rao, and uh, I'll be asking him to walk us through the training pathway, uh, the experience that's needed, and how he entered this particular field. How do psychiatrists equip themselves with the skills and training to help people cope with um, the increase that we're seeing when it comes to mental health problems and diagnoses? Dr. Ravi, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Yep, I'm good. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for the opportunity. So I think um, this is probably a very basic question for you, but what does a psychiatrist do? All right. A psychiatrist is a specialized medical doctor like any other specialist. You have a surgeon, you have a physician, you have a cardiologist. So that's the range of specialized medical doctors, a specialist. Um, the field of psychiatry deals with a huge and I really need to emphasize huge range of mental health conditions. And um, a psychiatrist, being a specialist, uh, provides care in the form of assessment and management of mental health conditions and disorders, usually in the range that is complex. It's important here to put all these nuances into place because it's not just the psychiatrist who provides mental health care. There are a lot of other people, including primary care providers, uh, counsellors, clinical psychologists, social workers. There is a big team. There's, the ecosystem is big. The psychiatrist, that's the specialised role. We see patients in various setups, outpatient, inpatient, community care, community mental health centres like Mantari. We prescribe electroconvulsive therapy, perform electroconvulsive therapy. Uh, as a specialist, we often have consultation roles and that's actually a big part of our work, normally by junior colleagues, um, safeguarding, shared care, co-managed care with other disciplines. And we also do other lines of work, which may not be direct patient care, which would include, and that really matters where you work, um, research, teaching, advocacy, capacity building, advisory roles, scientific exercise and training. You know, one uh, question that somehow usually comes up when you talk about what a psychiatrist does um, is what's the difference between a psychiatrist and say somebody like a clinical psychologist? Mm. Uh, is that something that you still encounter? And would you like to address that? I think um, that question is asked, not so much, but I think it's really important for the public to know their roles because sometimes people will be looking for assistance and they wonder where to look for assistance, who will be the right fit. Um, and there is a great deal of overlap. That's why people want to know the difference because there is a great deal of overlap. And sometimes when you explain, as what I when I explained just now, uh, you know, people might also think, isn't that what a psychologist does? Of course, I think I've uh, conspicuously left out prescription of medicines, but we do also provide prescription of medicine. Um, in fact, it starts with how did the person get trained and uh, what is the person's background? Psychiatrists, uh, medical doctors, and then they specialise. Clinical psychologists in this country, they start off with a basic psychology degree or something of that equivalent and then do a master's or a PhD. All right. So in terms of roles, 
Uh, let me talk about what added role that clinical psychologists bring in. Uh, clinical psychologists provide options on various assessments and management in terms of talk therapies. And um, they also have the role in providing psychometric assessment. Psychometric assessments include administering certain tools, especially the ones that are complex, to make a valid assessment, you would say. It would be useful if you are looking at assessing IQ or any kind of inter intelligence-related domain, cognitive capacity domain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Example, that's just an example, and they do a whole lot more. And then they say, oh, so the psychiatrist just gives medicine and doesn't do therapy. That, that's not true either. I would say we do that too, but a clinical psychologist's time is fairly protected to do very structured therapy. If you look at certain therapy formats, which you probably need looking at 10 to 20 sessions, and with the work that I've just explained what a psychiatrist does, it's quite hard to fit in within our clinical schedule to do it. Some of them do it, mm. but I think a clinical psychologist has the range to do it in a much more sustainable way. Mm. What was your own exposure? And I want to go back a little bit to, I guess, your what drove your personal choices to enter this field, you know? What was your own exposure to mental health and well-being, say, growing up or uh, during the early years of your medical degree? I think that's something that most of us in the field will reflect. Why did we choose what we chose for? I think each of us have our own unique experiences, our own protective factors in life and own uh, adverse life events, you know. Uh, I think for doctors, I mean, I'm, I can only speak for myself. Mm -hmm. Sometimes good teachers, experiences in the field and the interest in the field along with your own lived experience helps in selecting your specialty. The human mind is always, and the human experience, rather than the mind, the human experience is always interesting. It's never the same thing and never the every day. And it's quite vivid. So that's probably a bit... And of course, along the way through medical school or had good exposures and attachments in psychiatry, I've managed to do an elective overseas in psychiatry as well. And that also opened my eyes. It was actually in a third world country. So that also provided some insight to what it what happens. And then hmm. when you started working in, in housemanship, there was an opportunity to do uh, psychiatry as an elective posting and um, uh, and the rest is history. Okay. <laughs> um, but this decision, did anyone around you sort of look askance, you know, like, oh, why do you want to choose this specialty? Um, is it going to make you a lot of money, you know? I mean, I think some of the stereotypes still stand, right? Did you encounter attitudes that tried to dissuade you from mm. pursuing the specialty? I think that's where it comes to the element of stigma. The stigma that unfortunately is still very pervasive that affects a lot of people from getting help. In some parts of the world, 9 out of 10 people who need mental health assistance and help do not get it or do not seek it. And that comes in within the stigma and the discriminatory attitudes that follow it. Mm. And what happens is uh, this doesn't stay very far from the practitioners as well. That stigma does go there. There are a lot of thoughts, and even in some places like the UK, they have something called the anti-bash campaign, which I urge uh, people to look up and see. And it's also something that I reflect and say that if you're any doctor, when your patient meets you down the road, they will say hi very easily. Uh, it's not so same for my patients to say that to me. I mean, I mean, I thought so, but I've been proven wrong in the recent past. So 
that is also things that are the indicators that things are better. But yes, there is there are a lot of ideas saying that oh, this is a specialty that that has many labels attached with it. So, but what I can say instead of saying what people may have said or what people may have had or whoever in whatever position could have dissuaded, I would like to say it's a very real profession. It is a very legitimate profession. It is just that you work with a different group of patients. And why it is a little bit different is because we don't just work with the human body's biology, but we work with a very dynamic interaction of the person's self and the world. And that there's no way. we And we also cannot read minds. That's something I like to tell. We can't. So... Uh, it's not just sit and talk. It doesn't mean that we are not awakened at night for on calls. All of that realities that exist in other specialties also exist in ours. And it's just a little bit different. So that's quite important. And also a psychiatrist's ability to do their specialized work is a unique ability that is part of the diversity of medical specialties, which means what I'm trying to say here is you need to be that good to be a psychiatrist. You need to be that good to be a cardiologist. And you cannot, and you can't sort of say, oh, this is a better specialty than that. It's very apples and oranges. Okay. Right? All right. So we will um, dive into what that training pathway looks like mm-hmm. to um, specialize in psychiatry. When we come back from the break, I'm speaking to Dr. Ravi Varma Rao, a psychiatrist for this month's episode of Humans of Healthcare, which we are focusing on mental health in conjunction with World Mental Health Day, which falls on the 10th of October. Stay tuned to Health and Living. We'll be right back. BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Xiao Yi. Joining me in the studio today, Dr. Ravi Varma Rao, a psychiatrist for our episode of Humans of Healthcare. We're looking at mental health uh, for this episode in conjunction with World Mental Health Day on 10th October, uh, taking a slightly different view to commemorate this very important day because we want to look at uh, one of the healthcare professionals who play an important role in mental health care, and that's um, what a psychiatrist does. And um, we've talked about what the role of a psychiatrist is together with a team of other mental health professionals. Um, We've talked about Dr. Ravi's own um, sort of foray and and what led him into this specialty. And maybe now we'll look at mechanics a little bit, Dr. Ravi, the nuts and bolts of of it. So what is the pathway to specialise in psychiatry? All right. Um, I think the answer that I'm going to provide is very much applicable to our country. It's a postgraduate qualification. So the basics is you have a medical degree and then this is done after. So that's the first part of it. And it's not just having a medical degree. It's uh, You do need to have some clinical experience. So if you look at it in this country, it's often uh, someone who starts training at, when they're a medical officer. Uh, you have to complete housemanship and then you enter in and then go on for further training. Uh, there are two major pathways, but these are not just the only uh, qualifications that are recognized by the National Specialist Registry, mm-hmm. which is I would urge people to look up because things change across time. Uh, there are people who are trained overseas and then they come here to work and they go through that pathway. But the two major pathways are uh, a master's program in the local universities 
or also another program which we call as a parallel pathway where in the uh, qualification by the Royal College of Psychiatrists of UK combined with clinical training is also a recognized pathway. Both pathways now are almost um, identical in duration. You still need four years training. You have similar clinical exposures. Just the exam is different. And also where you do your learning is also different. Uh, the people who take parallel pathway are mainly within Ministry of Health hospitals. Uh, the people in master's also have time in Ministry of Health hospitals as well and in their university. But just where and what, the, the small details um, are different. Mm -hmm. And after you have finished your training, those four years, you will undergo a period of gazettement, which for common people, or it could be something like probationary period as a specialist under supervision. And the entire training and life after training, is there's a lot of supervision that goes on. And that's where you develop your skills. You, you acquire knowledge, you develop skills, you hone your attitude. Mm. Let's talk about that training a little bit more specifically because the role that you described of a psychiatrist in caring and supporting people who who go through pretty complex uh, mental and emotional disorders is um, it, it's uh, in itself that role is very complex, right? So, and you talked about how you're not just looking at the biology of of um, condition, you are looking at if I can quote you the interaction between the self and the world. So what kind of training do you actually undergo uh, that equips you with these abilities, skills, mm. superpowers? <laughs> I don't think they are superpowers. I think it's just like any skill. If you ask me if I could repair an aeroplane, I can't. So I think that looks like a superpower to me. Um, what is important is that in any bits of training is that you're working with very vulnerable people. And the only way that you know how to work with vulnerable people is that you have the required competencies that include acquisition of knowledge. So there is learning and also uh, the skills to find out what's going on in a person's life. Yes, we our assessments involve talking, but how to talk, how to recognize when a person, what a person is saying, what directly, indirectly, and what, how a person's experience is shaped by people around the person. So all of that. So training has a lot of supervision, and that supervision happens in many levels. The systems are placed in a way that, you know, your training is supervised, you know. Mm. It's similar to any medical training. I mean, that always happens, you know. You go through housemanship, where your training is supervised and you become a medical officer. So somebody's always there to provide feedback. Mm. Mm. Uh, that's that. And a good deal of working with vulnerable groups is exposure to the entire spectrum of what distress looks like. So that's why you have various rotations while you are doing for training. You work with people who have a substance misuse problem, young people, old people, uh, people who are inpatient, outpatient, uh, vulnerable members of the community that probably need home care, sometimes people in a community mental health centre, sometimes people who come in contact with the legal system in forensic psychiatry, uh, people who have neurological problems as neuropsychiatry, people who have medical problems as well as mental health issues. So that forms a good 
exposure to training, mm. and that that's important. And then each part of the training has its own objective that needs to be met, um, and that's a bit. And of course, through your training, you develop the ability to be comprehensive, concise, thorough. To see a person at a snapshot of their life, which you call the mental state, and also to see the person in a longitudinal aspect, which is how did this happen to someone, and how did they, what led them to this point in life, and um, you know that involves you to sensitively elicit that information, uh, get it from people around the person with the person's consent, and sometimes the person doesn't have capacity, you might need to ask too, and then. Uh, Sometimes a person's not easily uh, not able to communicate. So how do you go about that when somebody's not talking? Somebody speaks a different language. Distress can be assessed even that way. So this is what our training is, and that's why it's a specialized field. Mm. It's quite a bit. It's quite a bit complex. Yeah, yeah. Do you um, go into further sub-specialization in any areas or further skills development? Yep. I think um, when they. A person finishes a training as a psychiatrist. They can then choose to undertake further areas of sub-specializations. Uh, the areas that I mentioned are all where people go on. Some people choose to work on general adults. Some people further want to specialize in any field that they prefer, maybe child and nursing, etc. And uh, some people also. Uh, develop their own niches as well. Hmm. And psychiatrists can also um, learn to provide talk therapies, right? Yeah. In fact, it is in the part of our training, which I think I failed to mention just now, but it is in part of our training where you have to acquire basic uh, skills in psychotherapy, mm. at least cognitive and dynamic therapy. Mm. Uh, sometimes, even during training, even 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 before training, some people go on to learn about this. There are courses, trainings, workshops, programs that you know you can enter in your initiative. The thing that's in vogue is mostly third generation no psychotherapies. If you because in therapy there's first gen and second gen, you have the behavioral people. Then we have the cognitive thinking of way of looking at it, and then you have the third gen, third generation, which includes things like. I'm going to use a lot of jargon here, dialectical behavioral therapy, which is indicated for borderline personality disorder. I think that is somewhat known to people and things like acceptance, commitment therapy, etc. Okay. But I would say uh, it's really, there's a lot of skills that we can acquire, not just, um, not just specific to therapy. Sometimes it's always good to refresh back because knowledge, constant knowledge and, and, um, and the way we understand mental health conditions change and evolve. Uh, so that's a bit mm. of things that we learn. And I think another set of skills that we do need to get is the more practical skills and I'll call street smart skills. How do psychiatrists handle media? How do we handle the changing landscape where the roles of people who need mental health care has become very um, complex? But also there's a more fairer and equal world where people with lived experience have a lot to say. So that's also a skill that we do need to evolve and work around with. It's not about who's on top of who, but it's more important to see how 
care can be provided in collaboration. So that's also a skill that uh, that I think people have. People are learning as well. True, yeah. And you mentioned the changing landscape of mental health, and and uh, you know, as a layperson, what I see is um, really a huge increase in awareness and uh, normalizing uh, talking about mental health issues. Um, and on your side of things, um, is there also a vast increase in um, scientific knowledge uh, when it comes to mental health and psychiatry? I would say that we now know better. We don't know everything, and we are far from knowing everything. There is increased research across the world, increased best practices. We are looking into areas that have been previously not really explored. No one gets left behind. We are looking at niches, and that's the thing. We are getting a lot of interest in research, and we're getting interest in practice, and people are also setting up specialized care across the world. And uh, that's, that's where it is, because when there's, it's, it is true, awareness actually drives, uh, drives also research and new knowledge as well. So, Speaking of entering this uh, specialization, when you meet and speak to health officers or medical officers, um, are there certain traits that you would, you know, look at and think, oh, this person might suit a career in psychiatry or, or mental health care? The fair and probably correct answer to that is that I should not be in a position to comment on it. But of course, uh, what I would think is more than what a specialist thinks of who can be better. And I think and that's something that we learn a lot, uh, the maturity that we get as time goes on. It is something that question has to be actually asked by the person who wants to enter the field. Often more you think that, oh, this person can communicate well. This person would do well working with patients. This person has skills. And unfortunately, sometimes they don't even have the interest in the field. So it has to be very much coming to the understanding that you do want to help people who are very vulnerable. And I keep repeating the word vulnerable because uh, when you're allowed that sacred space into a person's mind where someone doesn't let anyone else in and you are allowed to share those very difficult but yet very human experiences, you would need to really be mindful on how you want to use that information. Saying By saying that, I mean no one is perfect. It's not very easy to develop that level of uh, competence. But there comes a big feel of what your attitude has to be especially recognizing your own privilege. And with the right attitude, and of course, uh, combined with your own competencies that you've had before, uh, it could be something that you would want to go about. And also the ability to think that a problem is not just a one plus one equals two. You have something that happens. You can see a person here. You would like to look what are the protective factors in that person. You would like to see how that person has reached here in interactions in the world. You like to be, you've got to think a lot about this. Yeah. And of course, yes, you have threads of thinking and all of that, but it often requires a lot of out-of-the-box out of solutions as well. Mm. So if you have that kind of mindset and you, you will eventually develop patience. It might not be there at the start of the training. And, and why I say this is because sometimes a lot of people are turned away from this field saying that, oh, in order to be a psychiatrist, you must be patience, soft-spoken, etc. Yes, that those are very nice traits, but I guess uh, 
it's also important that even within the many psychiatrists that we are just people, we are just specialists. We also have different start traits as well. We call it the beginning traits. And we can look at enhancing and finding which works for us best. Mm. It's to stop the stereotype. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. And uh, this idea that there's a cliched homogenous profile. Earlier you mentioned that um, you know you wanted to emphasize psychiatry is a very real, very legitimate profession and specialty. Um, what have been some moments in your career that have underscored you know how important a psychiatrist is in this larger ecosystem? We see our patients for a fairly longer time than our other colleagues. Um, we have a long follow-up. People do follow up with us for a long time. Mm-hmm. So um, what is nice is, um, or maybe rewarding or satisfying, would be when you see people who come to you in so much distress and then they get better. And it's really important here to emphasize that people get better with a lot of effort on their own. Specialized services, care provisions, medications all support that journey, but it's not that is the reason they get better. I often have to give that feedback to patients even when they say that because uh, it's important that the role of themselves. But when you are part of that journey, when somebody gets better and somebody goes on with their life and they get milestones, and that includes things like a young person who have come with suicidal crisis, and then you see that young person get better, finish school, go on to university, you know, and... That person is happy, the context of the, the the person's environment, the family is happy, and you see that that journey they have taken and you being part of the journey is very, very fulfilling. Mm. Anything you've learned on the job that you would say, you're not going to get this from the textbooks, but it's been pivotal you know, in being able to do what you do? I think it's really important to listen to patients. We often assume a lot. I mean, we, we as humans assume a lot, like this is expected, you know. You often go into a room or you go into a consult assuming this might happen, but often more than not, many times it's the other way around. And I think one of the things that you really can learn with experiences is uh, to not give up. You will find that even when in situations when things look like nothing works, something will work, something evidence-based will work. And it's really more of you to see. And really, when you say see, it's not just looking. It's seeing the person in front and uh, finding out from the person as much. And you probably, it's not just one consult. It's uh, sometimes the story unfolds slowly. Sometimes people themselves, when they're going through distress, they don't know what actually has caused their distress and that's why they're not able to tell it. Mm-hmm. So many sessions will probably reveal that. All right. When we come back from the break, we'll kind of uh, look at the mental health aspect of psychiatrists themselves um, because this is also a discipline that has been linked with burnout and uh, mental health distress. So let's look at what it takes to take care of um, people working in this field. On this episode of Humans of Healthcare, I'm speaking to psychiatrist Dr. Ravi Varma Rao. We'll be right back on Health and Living, BFM 89.9.
Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Xiao Ik. Joining me on the show today, Dr. Ravi Varma Rao, psychiatrist, our featured guest for this month's episode of Humans of Healthcare in conjunction with World Mental Health Day on the 10th of October. Now we've looked at what a psychiatrist does. How do you become a psychiatrist? And now let's look at um, how to take care of psychiatrists themselves. Now, psychiatry has been named as one of the disciplines with very high risk of burnout and suicide. So turning the lens on the practitioner this time, Dr. Ravi, let's explore a little bit why psychiatrists might be so vulnerable and how can we better support this, uh, the professionals in this discipline? Thanks for asking that question. And I think that's a very important point to touch because uh, it's important to know that in many communities, uh, especially communities like ours, uh, doctors and uh, specialists are positions of trust. We need to be mindful that the work that we do has a lot of exposure, and you know, and that exposure can be different for different practitioners. That includes working long hours. Those are things that are quite common to uh, many doctors: uh, working long hours, seeing patients, uh, working in healthcare systems that are getting very stretched. These are pub- these are now in public knowledge. Mm. But in psychiatry specifically, uh, we have a lot of exposure to very highly intense critical events. People come to us at sometimes their worst points in their life. And you don't see one patient, you see many patients. And you that exposure, when you experience that, that also becomes part of your experience. Yeah. Sometimes you are exposed to a lot of trauma. Sometimes you work with people who have unfortunate outcomes. Um, Suicide. Uh, Loss after a patient's suicide is very profound. It's a sort of grief that people don't get over with. So we do need to be mindful that we are human. Uh, We need to be careful that can make ourselves very vulnerable and we sometimes forget to take care of ourselves. I think because you think that, okay, this is just seeing a patient, you have set your boundaries, you've kept, you make sure you've not been affected. But when people tell you things, you you hear those things. And hearing those things itself, especially firsthand, sometimes, um, you know, that it certainly leaves a mark some more than the others. Yeah. How have you taken care of yourself? It, and then, you know, let's widen it out to then how can the whole profession be better supported? I think... Um, the most important thing I think many of us do, I mean, some of us do find very helpful is uh, support in the terms of peers and colleagues. Uh, that has been immensely valuable um, throughout your career. It starts with good supervisors, excellent bosses. I mean, I would say that I have had some really, really good uh, bosses who have become not just teachers, mentors, and also modeling on how to look after oneself. Self-care is very, very easy to say, but very hard to do. We give that advice very easily. We throw it and say, oh, practice self-care. And then then you see people who give the same advice, not sleeping well, not eating well, and not doing hobbies, not taking care of themselves, not looking after their physical health or mental well-being. So it's not easy. Um, We have recognized uh, where organizations are coming in to support us. Uh, associations often are very helpful like uh, 
MMA Malaysian Medical Association and then they become our liais- liaison officers with our employing bodies and also the, the medical council they work together these are organizations that start providing scaffold of course the other bit the most important bit is then coming to the fact that your peers as well I've talked about the boss I've gone a bit away about in the structural support and what would really help also is peer support you have someone to talk about to vent about to discuss about sometimes it, it's not just about work we have a life out of work that yeah. probably needs to be said <laughs> and that could also take a toll because of the work we do and um, it's good to have good friends who you can talk about work some people just like to talk about work to one group of friends maybe not to the other it's good to have a mix of friends it's good to have uh, a mix of friends across ages that's really helpful your peers a bit senior a, a bit of the the gang that you hang out all of that if that works for you if that's something that you like mm. and um the other thing is that could be very helpful is when and this has this has been cited in research and reason guidance comes in people need to be supported after high risk incidents example post suicide there needs to be structured support that gives given that and that has been something that has a reason there reason guidances that have come up uh, the I think the Royal College of Psychiatrists has a guidance on supporting clinicians after the death of a patient by suicide. Um, there are also guidances on how to support the healthcare workforce on the whole postvention support. That is something that we can do. We can all do better, especially if there is a suicide within your healthcare services. Uh, not just to find out why it happened, what happened. It's also important to support the people who are affected. Do you feel that it should actually be structured, made mandatory almost, um, instead of saying uh, the services are there if you want to approach them? Mm-hmm. I would say when we talk about structure, when you want to structure in any services, and maybe this is me being very, I would say this is a field that I am quite out of depth to comment on. I maybe can't comment on this. But what I would say is, Attitudes need to be ch- changed before structural changes happen. I mean, we need to be first ready to receive help. A lot of times people don't feel that they're not ready to receive help. So that starts there. And of course, eventually, uh, these services are probably on the way, actually. They are already, people are trying to put in, in with post-vention services, there's always the support that's always mentioned for the clinician and all of that. It's there. But an important thing that we need to be mindful when we want to put in anything structural, there needs to be a lot of investment. It's uh, not just investment in provide creating guidance. It's also investment in human resource. It's also investment in funding and all of those kind of things. These things do take mm-hmm. time. And, and in, yeah, investment in uh, what comes after, right? Because yeah. you could identify challenges. Mm. What comes after for them? Are there services in place? A bigger part of the challenge, I would say, if there is a challenge, is for ourselves the readiness to seek help I think I find it maybe that it's good to rather than say what people didn't do and all that didn't do or should do or this thing it's more like what do you think about if it happens to you the fact is there is as much as we talk about the stereotype and all of that but we have to also be profoundly remembering that we are human and sometimes people find it very hard to ask for help because mm-hmm. people believe that oh I mean people could believe or you're supposed to provide support for others now you need to help yourself. The, the, the readiness to seek help. Yeah. 
that's actually often a very big strength I see in most of the patients. Something that we learn a lot from our patients is the ability and the strength to come and get help. Mm. It's not very easy to do that. That's true. And that's also something that probably answers a few questions before, which is one of the things that I think that we learn from patients is uh, sometimes their own experiences, sometimes we have reflections, also have some reflections on our day-to-day life. I mean... If, with that, if there's with people wanting to get help, I think service, of course, services will provision come in and all of that. Yeah. And it's also important here to note there needs to be a way where help can be sought after and supported. You know, where sometimes if within your service, you most of you will be looking after one person, and let's say there's a suicide that happens. Just using that example, who's going to support who now? There's a grieving family. There's all of that. So is it the same service? Mm -hmm. Ideally, in recommendation, uh, it should be some other service that comes in. That's what happens. Mm. But let's say you are the only service, 200 kilometers radius. Realistically, that's the case. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. the situation. So we find a middle ground. Mm -hmm. So sometimes challenges are like that. Sometimes challenges are very, you can't help it kind of situation. Of course, now we have better support, especially through online and all of that. Mm. And people can look for those. Speaking of services and resources that are available, um, what is the situation for psychiatry in Malaysia now in terms of numbers of specialists and how equitable is access for the public? Okay, this is a question that has to be really considered in nuance. We do have an increased number of specialists. That is true. You can always check up the National Specialist Registry. The numbers should be around there. There are some people who have left practice and sometimes that's indicated in the National Specialist Registry. We have at least more than 500 and closing 600 people who are registered in the NSR now under the specialty psychiatry. And then there are new psychiatrists who probably need to wait a year before, I mean, in training, then they will be registered. But of course, the NSR also has people who are retired, who are no no longer practicing, etc. That too is there. So... With that number, it's around there. It's still, it's certainly much more than what we had a few years ago. We have more psychiatrists coming out. Uh, of course, more more psychiatrists are sitting within the Klang Valley. Klang Valley has a lot of people. Uh, a paper by Professor Ng and colleagues that I think came out in 2018, they actually sort of measured how many uh, psychiatrists were there for 100,000 population, but it still looks like the Klang Valley was still overrepresented compared to the rest of Malaysia, even though they had more people. Mm. Okay. few ways to look at the findings. Sometimes people are working here and maybe not staying here. There are people who are not accounted for all of that. It's still quite a lot because it's the numbers look a few times more than other parts of Malaysia. Mm. That's one. But our numbers have also started increasing, even within the time from that paper was published till now. Uh, at that time, the study recorded 410 psychiatrists. You're looking at just a few five years, five you have years. Really seen the growth. It's important when we look at the number of psychiatrists, we look at it very holistically. First, within just psychiatrists, not just psychiatrists are available in Ministry of Health hospitals. They're the most, but they're not the only one. They are also in teaching hospitals, yep. which are unfortunately concentrated in the Klang Valley. So that's why the number is also high here, because mm-hmm. a lot of teaching hospitals are in the Klang Valley. Yep. All right? Then, of course, other universities are elsewhere too. And then you also look at people who are in private practice, who I think need to be given also the credit because they are doing a lot of work in the community as well. 
access to mental health services should have options. People should be able to go everywhere and people should have the options to go everywhere. So if you want to look at equitable access, start thinking about insurances providing mental health insurance mm-hmm. rather than saying you need to keep increasing the number of psychiatrists or this thing when, when there's so much, it, you know, or straining the public health system. Uh, you also need to look at uh, new ways on how we can keep our national healthcare service sustainable. There's a lot of talk about that. Yep. And also, as I mentioned earlier, not all mental health conditions need a psychiatrist to be there. The mental health services can be best visualized by the WHO Mental Health Pyramid, where there is a base and there is the vertex at the top. From the base, you take half of it, which is the bigger part of the pyramid in terms of volume. It has to be formal and uh, there's, there's informal and formal services. The bottom part is actually informal services, community, self-care, all of that that's available informally around us. So that's why public health interventions on good health-seeking practices and good ways of living, good life skills make a whole lot of difference because they prevent mental health problems from occurring. Uh, That's also where a lot of investment in policy goes in so that you have risk factors like drug and substance abuse are kept at a bay. Mm. All of that. That's where the big part is. Mm. Then the clinical services start primary care. We can't go without primary care there because primary care is invariably will be much more than tertiary care. That's where the investment is. I mean, that's how it should be structured. Because complex problems are few, but they're difficult to treat. Mm. Common problems are many, but easier to treat. And then, so that's where you look at it. So again, the ecosystem. I would say we need, while we all want more psychiatrists and all of that. I mean, that's everything everybody wants because... With the numbers that come, the problems, as, I've, as you mentioned, are changing and evolving. So mm. you need the numbers to match. Yeah. But you would need more clinical psychologists, counsellors, specialised social workers. All these are things that we need. Yeah. And it's really important to help with the whole lot. Yeah. Um, before we wrap up, are there any challenges faced by the profession that you'd like to highlight and see being addressed? Well, I cannot speak for others, huh? The challenges that are faced by the doctors and specialists in this country are quite uh, are quite well publicly made aware already. Since we are also a similar profession, those challenges also affect us as yeah. well. And I think um, what we would look at is as our healthcare landscape grows, these specific challenges for all, which affects all also, we also would need that space as well. We have discussed about a public health care system that needs a different way of looking at and that's what the government is looking at and all of that. So when that happens, and now a lot of decisions are informed by evidence. So that's why research is important. Mm. That's why uh, statistics is important. That's why we need to know what's happening. And that's when, when you know there's a problem, there is an investment. When you anticipate a problem, there is... Uh, also investment. A good way to think about anticipating an investment was actually during COVID. A lot of good structures were laid in because people feared things could happen. That was very robust, rapid ways of putting in things. We had helplines come in. We had uh, support services available for people. We anticipated people will be there. So that was actually very good in laying what you call as the it's not laying the foundation of whatever that is. It's, it's a good renovation, that a house that has been there for 20-odd years or something like that, mm. that has got a good upgrade. So that kind of mm. thinking is what uh, that needs to happen. 
of course, specifically different places, different locations have challenges. If you would say, let's just look at obvious challenges. If you work in a place where you're the only service, it's often a challenge. There's nowhere else to go except you. Yeah. Yeah. If you're working in a remote place, you probably won't have too many, too many people to have even support. You will be. That's just the thing. So those things are being addressed, actually. So we see how things go about. And to wrap up, Dr. Ravi, any words of wisdom for, say, younger crop of uh, medical students or graduates who may be interested in pursuing psychiatry? There needs to be passion, there needs to be a purpose, and there needs to, there really needs to be that resilience to persevere. Because I think that's the toughest part, to stay on track once it is. It could be, you could be very passionate about mental health, you feel that you want to change the world, you have the skills, you have the knowledge, you might go in. Then I think it's important that if you have that interest, you see whether this works for you. Don't just go in without knowing what's actually in it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also important to be mindful that when you start, you'll be looking at a very big range of patients, from the young to the old, from different levels and different backgrounds and etc. Uh, you see very wealthy patients, not wealthy patients, very poor people who are homeless, uh, people who are from another country, people who are stateless, mm. all of that, that mix is there. Some of the work that we do that could be a bit difficult is like safeguarding work. In when, when you're looking at people who have, young people who have been abused and all of that, or anybody, mm. it's important to have a good understanding of the system before, of the picture before going in. And... Um, Never get into it because thinking life will be easy. It's, 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 it's rewarding, but it is not easy. But it is a very worthwhile specialty. On that note, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with me today. Dr. Ravi Vamarao, psychiatrist for our episode of Humans of Healthcare in conjunction with World Mental Health Day. This has been Health and Living on BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.